0: I just felt this morning uh, in particular that, um, you know, all of us are at different places in our lives, going through all kinds of stuff, some difficult stuff, some good, some bad, something different. Um, uh, just, I just felt the encouragement to say to you, just lift up your eyes to Jesus. I mean, it sounds super simplistic, but I just feel if we, if we, uh, if we can uh, make that like, um, like a habit, I don't know if that's the right word, but a default. Like God, things are tough. Things sometimes are brutal. I mean, look up. He is faithful. Okay? He's able. He's eternal. And we're living in that eternal reality now. We're not waiting to die. True? Chant? True? True there. <laughs> yeah. So today is Matthew twenty-four, guys, and and these are my notes, you can see I, I got kind of creative with the Matthew, see, Matthew. And that's my notes, yeah, that's all I have. Um, I'll tell you why, because Matthew is the most controversial passage in the entire Bible. And I didn't even make that up. That is what theologians and guys say about it. And, and at Bible school, I failed one course. It was eschatology, okay? which means a study of the last days. Okay, I failed it. I've, I failed it because I didn't really get the whole rapture thing and pack your bag, sit on your rooftop and wait for Jesus to airlift us out of here. I, I couldn't really get it and I struggled with it. And a friend of mine who was lecturing the course actually failed me, the punk. But um, I, we had great discussions about it uh, because I believe that, and I know that you guys believe that too, and I, I think that we think that we believe it because we say it a lot, But I do really believe that heaven is coming down here. Okay. So one thing I've learned from Matthew chapter 24, and I've read a lot and I've studied a lot this week. Okay, so if I sound stupid, you know I did put my work in. I tried my best. But uh, this is my disclaimer. So I'm going to, it's a lot. I'm going to do chapter 24 and 25, and I'm going to read it, and I'm going to tell you what I think about it. But I want to say this before we start to read this. I need you to pay attention to me, please. Jason, stand still. Okay, so the language, the language of the Hebrews, the Jews, and the Greeks, the Greeks included, was what the the Bible guys call. I love the word. It sounds so amazing. It's hyper. It's hyperbolic. So it is. It is. It is full of extremities and and um, and and statements that if you do not take it metaphorically, you're going to get into deep trouble. Like Jesus saying things like, the, the moon will turn to blood, the sun will die, the stars will fall from the sky, and we can read into that because there was a meteor that fell in Arizona somewhere, that's what God means. But let's, when we approach these next two chapters, I want you to just to, to back out. Sometimes when, we, when we're very close to something, you can see a certain aspect and it's amazing. And I think as human beings, generally, we have the tendency to do this in all things. We hyper-focus on our own lives and we bring God and all His expanse and His majesty and His glory and He loves to do that. There's nothing wrong with that but if we only live in that place then we become smaller and smaller because we want to bring God into our vision of what we have right in front of us right now. Sean, can you turn me down a little bit please? Or give me some bass? I want to sound like Barry Manilow. <laughs> Take down the mids. Okay. So, zone out. Look at, look, look at what we're going to read now in the next two chapters, metaphorically. Do you understand what a metaphor is? It's like a type. And right throughout the Gospels, from the beginning to the end, when Jesus speaks about this glorious kingdom, because we see in Matthew, Matthew 24 here, the radical end of an era. And God calls it the end of a generation, the end of a people, the end of a system, God's people. Okay, and the way that things were done, the sacrificial system is abolished in chapter 24 of Matthew. And Jesus became that lamb, as we know, who who sacrificed his life so that we could live. Not so that we could sacrifice, but so that we could be the living reality of that sacrifice. So hyperbolism is prevalent throughout this. So let's, are you ready to read it? So let's zone out. Did you hear that part that I said? Did you hear that part? So let's not focus here. Okay, let's go. Matthew chapter 24 from verse 1. I'm reading from the NIV, the nearly infallible version. Jesus left the temple and was walking away with his disciples. Now, Jesus, now we know, let me just trace it. In chapter 24, 23, Jesus gave the seven woes to the Pharisees, the warnings of those, of those who upheld this system that he came to tear down. You know, just before that, he went into the outer court, which is like a long building on the side of the temple. And I wish I could put a, I I should have spoken to Frank to get a picture of the temple up there. But the outer courts of the Gentiles, Jesus went in there to the tables, stopped what was going on there, said, guys, this has to come to an end. This money-making racket to exploit people to come to me is now over. Can you not see it yet? And Yet people didn't see it. They didn't see it. And in our life, lives, likewise, it sometimes takes forever. It takes genera- a generation sometimes for us to see differently, because we come in with all kinds of experiences and encounters and cultural contexts. That when we come to the Scripture and we and we read it point blank as it is, we end up super confused. Unless you have the revelation of the Holy Spirit all the time, which I don't really have all the time yet, but I want to. But but this is Jesus now stepping out of the temple. He'd been in the temple. The Pharisees confronted him. He overturned the tables. The Pharisees confronted him about his authority. Who are you? Where are you get all this from? A couple of quick scenarios backwards and forwards. And then him and his disciples step out from all those massive pillars. You can see it. There's lots of pictures online about the temple. All right, you can go look at it. In Jerusalem. It was everything. It was the center of the world hyperbolically speaking, because it wasn't the center, but it was the center of the Jewish system. And so Jesus and his disciples stepped out from among those massive pillars, walking down the stairs on their way to the falafel shop, and then he said, okay guys, and they said to him, and, and they came up to him and called his the buildings. Do you, do you see all these things, he asked. I'll tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on, on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately. Tell us, uh, they said, okay, this is, this is a big deal, so I'm going to just stop, otherwise we're never going to make it. Number one, when will this happen? Jesus made a statement. It came out, he said, not one stone is going to be left on top of each other. His disciples were like, wow. When will this happen? First question. Number two, what will be the sign of you coming and of the end of the age? Three questions. When will this happen? Jesus said, "I'm going. When? What's the sign of you coming back? And when will we know it'll be the end of the age?" Those three questions. Chapter 24 and 25 is Jesus trying to explain these questions. I try and explain, but he's unfolding this, this thing. And so, verse 4, Jesus answered, "Watch out that no one deceives you, because many will come in my name claiming that I am the Christ." And we know, in particular, that historically, not Josephus, but the other, the other historian, quit. Uh, Cornelius or something like that at the current time, said that many messiahs arose from the time of Jesus entering Jerusalem. So he was still alive. Significantly more than during other times, there were false messiahs that arose. And so Jesus said, Be careful that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name declaiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So wars and rumors of wars are not signs that the end is near. (coughs) Nations will rise against nations and kingdom against kingdoms and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of the birth pains. Now, many guys today say that, yes, it's true, so many more earthquakes. Actually, there are not more earthquakes in the world. There are actually less earthquakes. And we, the only difference is, is that because the world is becoming so small and communication is so amazing, we hear about everything that happens much more. So it seems like there are more earthquakes. But honestly, if you, if you, if you look at the records, there aren't more earthquakes. So these, these, these are great signs of, the, of the, the metaphoric reality of this thing. And Jesus is actually quoting out of Isaiah here. And he quotes in Matthew 24, Isaiah the prophet twice, and Daniel 7, Daniel 9, and Daniel 14. And you can go and read those references for yourself, or I will gladly, um, where are my notes? Give you my notes afterwards, and you can go and read them. So, just to say that, all these are the beginning of the birth pains, and you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all the nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn away from me and from the faith, and will betray and hate each other and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And there's, the, there's a big warning there. The increase of wickedness causes love to grow cold. Uh, and this is uh, just a kind of an ecclesiastical. It, uh, anyway, let me not go there. And this gospel, this gospel, okay, of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world, testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the Daniel, here we go. Let the reader understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let no one on the roof of their house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one on the field go back and get his cloak. How dreadful it will be on those days for pregnant women and for nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or at the Sabbath, for then there will be a great distress unequalled from the beginning the end of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be short. Now I just want to say a little bit about the, the elect. Okay. Oh. So you're still with me, right? Okay, so the abomination that causes desolation is something that was quoted a couple of times throughout Scripture, right? Now, 157 years B.C., before Christ, there was a, a, a ruler in, uh, in Jerusalem that, the, the Jews had been conf- in conflict with the rulers of the age for centuries, right? With the, the governing rulers, the Romans, and whoever was in charge of the city at that stage. And you could never separate the Jews from their faith. You couldn't do it. So if they had somebody else that was ruling, the Jews refused to change. Their temple was in the middle, and there was always this conflict reality. And 157 years or so, before Jesus came, an, an emperor actually entered the temple of the Jews, which was the most abominable reality ever. And on top of the the, 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 um, the, uh, the altar, set up the god Zeus. Zeus. Zeus and Apollo. Like, Sean wants to be Zeus. Sean, am I Right. Yes! Sean's our history major in the house. It's so awesome. And he sacrificed hundreds, and some scholars say thousands, of pigs on the altar, on top of the Jewish altar. And they called him, and that's what Jesus is referring to, the abomination that causes desolation. That's what Daniel is talking about, the abomination that causes desolation. This is 150-something before Jesus came into the temple. The abomination that causes desolation happened. And the, 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 the abomination means, in the Hebrew word, in the Hebrew meaning of, broader meaning of the word means, an idol that is um, erected in, in, the, in the presence of God. So the Holy of Holies was such a sacred place, obviously for the Jewish nation, for the people. And here, at the culmination of all things, and we know that, that Jesus is, is talking about um, about what is about to happen to this exact same temple in Jerusalem, all right? So, the abomination that caused desolation, in effect, had already happened 157 odd years ago. This is all history. He came, he set up Zeus on top of the burning altar and sacrificed pigs, and you know the Jews do not eat bacon, and it's a big deal. So, it was an abomination, and it caused a desolation to the Jewish people. But, they recovered, and they got it back, and they reinstituted, the sacrifi- reinstituted a sacrificial system, and, and so he says, he warns of this day that this is going to happen. So to answer question one, because I can feel that I'm, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm having a panic attack because I've got, time is going to run out and I'm going to be halfway through chapter 24, right? So it's going to slow right down right now. Slow right down and teach much less. <sighs> okay. So the elect. I want to say something about the elect. You know when we talk about the, the World Cup, um, um, then we say, like, Brazil is really known for their soccer, right? Or Portugal is a soccer nation. Or, or, um, or if we talk about Craig Kielberger's football team, Craig Kielberger is really an amazing football school. The bottom line is, Craig Kielberger isn't an amazing football school, but there's a quarterback at Craig Kielberger. <laughs> Just saying. So, so the point that I'm trying to make is that a school is represented by the, how many guys in the football team? 10 guys? 11 guys that are on the field right now. Just like a rugby team represents a country by the players that are on the field. And according to, uh, according to uh, Tim Mackey, he quotes some amazing scholars, there are three kinds of Christians in the world that we live in today. And you'll see why this is important. There are three kinds. Number one are those that are part of the crowd and they're outside the stadium. And there's so much outside the stadium, the the vendors, and and, and the stuff that's going on. And they love it. They love the crowd. But for some reason, they never are able to actually enter the stadium. But they love the crowd, and they're there on the peripherals of the the stadium. Then there are those that are in the stands. And and, and they are loud and raucous and opinionated. And uh, Levi went to a Blue Jays game with his mate, Aaron, who's like a, a, he worships baseball. He knows every player's history, how many children they have what their scoring rates are, everything. And he's chirping these players because they're sitting in the second row and they are, you know, chirping him back. And, and uh, so he knows, he's, he's, he's a very verbal, he's a super fan. He knows what's going on. It's amazing. It's fascinating. If you're watching Golf with Craig, it's the same thing. He knows every player. He knows what he's going to do. He knows what he's thinking. And I'm clueless, but it's ama- you, you're almost more intrigued by this guy that's a super fan than the game that's going on. There are Christians like that in the church or believers like that in the church. They have a lot of opinions. And then you have the guys that I want to call the elect of, of Matthew 24. And, and in other places, the Bible speaks of it. Actually, the Bible speaks of it from Genesis to Revelation, which means, which is the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible. It speaks about the remnant. Okay. Now, I'm not eschatologically saying that the remnant are those that God are coming to rescue and rip out of this world. Not at all. But I want to say to you that we, even in, within our church, if, if hearts grow cold and there's indifference, like the guy that Eric preached about, that entered into the wedding feast, that had no clothes on, it's an indifference. That's all it is. He was there. He was present. He loved the vibe. He ate the food. He drank the wine. But he was not dressed for the occasion because he was indifferent. He was the crowd. He was the one outside. He was just swooped up with the whole reality. But those who are engaged in the game, those who are kicking the ball, those who are making the moves, those who have lost focus of the crowd, they are here. They are engaging with the things of God. They are the remnant. And that goes throughout Scripture all the way through. Those who have not been tainted by a secular society, those who, who when there's a prayer meeting, they're there. Those who are looking for opportunities to engage in the church. That's the remnant, and Jesus addresses the remnant here, which is a big deal to me. I love that fact. I love that fact because we are we are we are in an era. Oh, I don't know how else to say this, where we are parallel to the bringing down of the Jewish temple. I believe that we are in a social era right now. We Christendom, if you want to call it that, or the mission or the or the ministry model of a world of a, of a world that we live in is coming down. And many believers are super insecure because they've only known a model. They've not known the Savior, the King, because they're not the remnant. They're not engaged in the field. They've been swooped up with a frenzy that's going on all around the sociology of the church, but not encountered the presence of God. Those are the ones that will make it through the fire out the other side. You don't have to read much, I promise you, in the Gospels to find this theme repeating itself throughout Scripture. And I must say this to you because the next two parables that Jesus tells to answer the questions of the disciples, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming, are the ten virgins, the five foolish and the five wise, and the servants and the talents. Which means there's a remnant. Means there are those that that are going to go through stuff out the other side. Glad I got that off my chest. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect. If that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. In other words, okay, guys, I've warned you. Now you know. I've told you ahead of time this is going to happen. And I'm telling you, so when it happens, you, you, you know what's going to happen. And so anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, don't go out. Here he is in the inner room, don't believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures uh, will gather. And immediately after the distress of those days, let the sun be darkened, and this is Isaiah, quoting Isaiah, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken." Okay, so the, so the, okay, let me back up. So if anyone tells you, here I have verse 27, for us, as lightning comes, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there's a carcass, there will be vultures, uh, and they will gather. So the answer to question number one is Jesus' words that says, all of this will happen before you die. In other words, within this generation, before the end of this generation, everything that I'm saying to you here right now is be fulfilled. That's pretty plain. Okay, that's my opinion. There are other guys that, I can't even go there, but for me, Jesus is saying, guys, all of this system is going to be destroyed. You're going to be alive to see it. You're going to be alive to see it. And this is what actually happened historically. Rome was vicious. You know that. Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross by the collaboration of Pilate and the high priest the Jewish system and the Romans collaborated and the one that wanted a way out of this huge commitment to crucify Jesus the Messiah the king of the Jews was Pilate he wanted out the Roman governor said no I want nothing to do with it in fact his wife had a dream and said don't touch this man he's a good man and still he did and he handed it over to the the priest and because of this collaboration Rome killed Jesus through the Jews you get the mix right? But Rome used to do this. Um, um, what do you call it? There are all kinds of revolts in a town all the time. It's an in, uh, insurrection. So there are all kinds of things that pop up all the time with the Jews and the Romans. They were always bickering and always fighting. And, 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 and the high priest was the liaison with the Roman emperor all the time. So he would bring the case of the Jews before the Roman governor who was ruling fiercely, violently, viciously. And if there was an insurrection that was too much, then they would randomly randomly go throughout. And I saw this on that AD series as well, uh, that, on Netflix, AD. It's an amazing show. They would randomly go and pick people, take them outside the city, and crucify them, sometimes up to 4,000 people randomly, Jews, randomly. They'd walk into a house, they'd grab you, and, and your wife would stay behind, but they'd grab you out, and they'd take you to the hill, and they'd crucify you. And they'd go into another place, and so randomly, they would just grab people to say, if you dare mess with the Roman governors, this is what's going to happen to you. It's, this is not a matter of you guilty, you've done something wrong, you with a loud voice. No, I will take your child. I will take the innocent. I will take the one with no voice. I will take anybody in this place that I can, I can take one and leave the other. And what, the, what, in the 50s, what happened in the 50s in North America is that a theology was born out of this called the rapture theology. There's one scripture that backs it up and it's in Thessalonians. Where, where it says, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be transformed, which is so hyperbolic. It is, it is a stretch if you really slowly read and studied all the cross-references to it. So Jesus is definitely, in my opinion, not talking about a rapture. And is God coming again? Is Jesus coming again? I do believe He is coming again without a doubt. But I don't believe in that kind of a rapture where one is taken and one is left. If you, I'd love to chat to you about that if you don't agree. But... He's talking clearly here that the one that is taken is the one that is going to be crucified outside the city. And what they used to do, after all these people would be dead, they would literally insult the Jews so much because death and burial to the Jews, just like many other cultures today, was so sacred where they were buried. And that's why Jacob's bones were carried with Israel until they came into the promise where he was buried. Because it was such a big deal where you were buried. They would take all these bodies off, dig a big hole, and sometimes not even dig a hole. You can read all this. It's historic. It's, there's lots of that. And they would pile them up on a hill. And the only way that the loved ones would find, would, the families would find their loved ones, that was one was left and one was taken. It was nothing to do with, the, with the, Jesus rap, rapturing people and meeting them up in the sky. It's hyperbolic language. You've got to see that. It was Roman rule that came and took them. So the ones who were taken were the ones who were bad off. The ones who were left had life. The ones who were left behind, the only way they could find their loved ones is to look at the vultures. Where the vultures are, there the dead bodies would be. If I had a mic, I'd drop it right now. Right. Hyperbolic language. And for years and years, I used to go to Sunday school and watch like a thief in the night and be petrified. Petrified. My mom used to say, go into the movies if Jesus comes back and the rapture happens. You're on your ace, bro. Verse 30, at that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. If you read the prophets, you will see this language repeated itself over and over. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you will know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation, this generation, you can look at your footnotes there. The comparables are the generation that died in the desert. How long were Israel in the desert for? Forty years. So within 40 years, this is Jesus speaking at the age of 30. At 70 AD, exactly within one generation, the temple was overthrown and destroyed. Not one stone was left on top of each other. It actually happened. It took them three years to dismantle the temple. But the Romans overthrew it. The abomination that causes desolation had happened, and it happened again. And the end was then. And Jesus fulfilled that reality. So, now learn this lesson from the figure, okay, verse 36. And so, this is the second question. So, when is this going to happen? And basically, I'm just going to sum it up for you. I'm not going to read it. Jesus says, nobody knows. That's what I text Craig last night. Nobody knows. Like, nobody knows. So, the disciple says, "When, when are you coming back on the clouds? And he says, I don't know. The Spirit doesn't know. No one knows. Don't predict it. Only the Father knows. You know what I did yesterday? I did the unthinkable. I went to Wikipedia and I typed in, when is Jesus coming back? There's some freaky guy. May 17th, 2019. What's the date? What's the date? April, May. Guys, we have one month to reach Milton. Why are you still sitting here? Let's go. Now, honestly, it is futile. As a, young, as a young boy, we had a guy who said 1984 in October. I was super excited because it's near my birthday, and I was turning 18, and I was like, wow, Jesus is coming back. And I tried to be super holy. They came and went. Jesus never came back. Then I looked around to see if all the Christians that I knew were around, and I was left behind. Fortunately, they were all there, as carnal as we all were. Carnal. Jolling it up. Wow. Yes. So Jesus says, nobody knows, only the Father does. And I personally do not understand why people are so, in, so, what is the word? Like obsessed with knowing when Jesus is coming back. The reality is, he has already come. He is living in my heart. The thing that I long for more than anything in this world that I cannot even think anything near it is to see his face. But one day I will. In the meantime, I'll see Frank's face. <laughs> Close to Jesus. I, I remember at Hyde Park in England, the first time I was in London, we went off to church to Hyde Park and there was a guy who stood on a soapbox and said he was Jesus. And he had a long robe on, long hair, long beard, beautiful blue eyes. And I looked at him and I'm like, dude, I'm sure there's people who believe you. But the bottom line is, why are we so obsessed with knowing the exact day that he comes back? He will come back like a thief in the night, which simply means unexpected. It's not like, I'm watching to catch you guys out. So I had a bumper sticker in the island that said, Jesus is coming. Look busy. <laughs> and people are like, Yaku, that's so sacrilegious. You're a pastor. I'm like, no, it's so, re- it's so ridiculous that everybody wants to know the exact date. The exact Only the Father knows that. And then he'll say, it's time to go and get the bride. And that's what bleeds into the ten virgins. In the, Hebrew, in the Hebrew, Hebrew culture, when the bride and the groom got together and they fell in love, they were young, often very young in the Jewish culture. And then he would betroth himself to her and she would betroth herself to, to him based on his invitation of marriage. And then he would leave. And then he would, he would leave to go and build a house for them often on the father's land, and sometimes he would just leave to like the back of the property, but he would still leave, and there he would work, and they would live for a season in separation. And throughout the parables, these parables, the, 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 um, the end of the age, the, the, the virgins, the talents, and the sheep and the goats, there are, there are these phrases, and you can find them all there. It took a long time. The bride, the groom, took a long time to come back. The the, the talents, the master took a long time to come back. And in that time, some hearts grew cold. And so they could, the culture was that they would create a procession, a party. So, so like at Jeff and Ronnie's wedding, when we were all here, so what would happen is that Ronnie, Ronnie would, in the Hebrew version, would stand here uh, in her beauty and make herself ready, and she would have all her friends around her preparing the bride. And then Jeff would not be here. But all the way down the driveway, all the friends that were invited to the feast would stand. All the way down Trafalgar, he's coming from Georgetown, hopefully. And And then we would all stand along the way. And traditionally, the virgin friends of the bride would stand there and wait. And then as soon as they see the bridegroom, they would holler like a bush telegram along the line, back up. And sometimes the procession would be miles long. Jewish culture, just a cultural nugget. And then they would shout, the bridegroom is coming! Even when he's not coming. Because it was part of the cultural hype. The bridegroom is coming, that's why we're here. So everybody walking along the street just buying a loaf of bread, so, the bridegroom is coming! Oh, you guys are waiting for the bridegroom. Go it out. It's a wonderful procession. Uh, what are those Jewish uh, good luck words? Masel taf! Throwing money and... They're walking on because they became aware that these ones on the side of the road are waiting for the bridegroom's return. Someone betrothed to someone else. And those waiting for the bridegroom would very often suck crowds of people into the procession. Guys, I don't know about you, but I was crying when I read this. I think it's super cool. I think it's super cool. My diversion is this. On a Friday night, when there's 200 of us squashed in here into this place and we're worshiping Jesus with one voice from six different churches and someone who does not know Jesus, an unbeliever, walks into this place. I'm telling you now, on my word of honor, on my life, they cannot but be touched by the love and expression of devotion of a group of people to an unseen God. They would say, what is this? the bride is coming, the bridegroom is coming. That's all this is. We haven't seen him yet, but we know he's coming. And if you read the parable, they're shouting out, the bridegroom is coming, but he still didn't come. And when they say in midnight, it doesn't mean midnight. If you read the Greek, it says, in the dark time of the night. It just means somewhere in the night. could have been nine at night or five in the morning. The bridegroom appears, and he comes. And uh, how long have I been, Alice? I have no idea. Okay, so so the last thing I'm going to say about the ten virgins. There were five wise ones, the Bible calls them wise, and five foolish ones. The foolish ones um, are the ones who would not listen. And I say that because the Bible, when he refers to a fool throughout Proverbs and the Psalms, Speaks of a fool as a person who refuses to listen. I'm not talking about hearing. I'm talking about listening. And uh, perhaps their mom said to them, hey, take some more oil. It might be a long night, or whatever the case is. Knowing the tradition, knowing what was going to happen, they they should have been wise, but they wouldn't listen. It goes back to the man at the wedding feast without it. He wouldn't listen. He was indifferent. He was the one on the outside of the, of the pavilion, never saw the team, never even saw the team play, never even knows about the team or anything, couldn't express his loyalty or his passion or his devotion and desire, not at all, because he's caught up on the outside, he's indifferent, indifferent, and that's why Spurgeon says, you could be cold, you could be hot, but one thing you cannot be and ever say that you're a follower of Jesus the Messiah is indifferent. You cannot, you'd rather be cold or hot. The middle, the indifference, is what Jesus himself in Revelation says makes him nauseous. It's that ugh, fake it. I once had a bit of a flair in that. I know what it's about, but I'm indifferent. That's the danger of it. And that's the warning of the ten virgins for me. I'm sure if we go around this room, we'll have ten fresh revelations of the, vir- the, ten, the ten virgins. But let's leave it at that because of time. Okay? So the parable of the, ta- of the talents... Again, it will be like a man going on a journey. He called his servants and trusted them. Um, Okay, the thing about the talents is that each one was given according to his ability. Okay, so if you were given five, it was because you were able to take responsibility for your five. Responsibility plus faith equals anointing. And I know anointing is like an inner word just for like the church, because people don't really in the world know what it means. But if you take responsibility for the, for the talents that God gave you or the gifts that God gave you, in this case we can do that, and you are faithful with those gifts, take responsibility for them, you are faithful with them, and it takes time to nurture them, your anointing literally increases without a shadow of a doubt. But if you're always shrinking back, you're denying it, you are like the one who took it and buried it. And there's lots to say about that, but that's all I'm going to say for now. Interestingly, the master took a long time to come back. A long time. Okay, and then the sheep and the goats. I'm just going to read it. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as sheep herd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Interesting, the kingdom and world in one sentence. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invited you in or needed clothes to clothe you? And you need clothes. When did we see you, you sick or in prison, or and, and go to visit you? And the king will reply, "I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me." Then he said to those on his left, "Depart from me, you who are crushed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in." I needed clothes, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you didn't do it for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. We were in Haiti prison, um, And um, the prison was absolutely jam-packed with people. Chan and Debs led a team there. We went with them. And um, it was one of the times where I just became so aware of, uh, of, uh, of doing to the least. And I'm not saying this from a, like, a, like a, a secular point of view. I just genuinely was overwhelmed with the reality that us just going there, and, um, and, uh, and being there was a big deal. And I remember one thing. I remember telling the guys, because I felt that there. I don't know if you remember. But the prisoners, the doors were like small steel doors. And, and there was like, I don't know, 20 guys in a room. And then they would squash to the door, all of them. They just wanted one eye out the door. So all you saw was this, 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 this door with steel bars and faces and arms out. And I just feel, I just felt at that particular time, I didn't know what to say to these guys. It could be awesome. Levi said something, Rebecca sang a song, it was just a beautiful time of God um, communicating to these men that they are loved, and they, that they are not lost, but I remember feeling that we need to touch these guys' hands, right, so my, my memory is of this is that uh, the team was just holding onto these guys' hands, you know, and... Uh, You know, there was little Sarah with her. She was small in those days. When was that? It was like five years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, she was so small. And, you know, I remember her hair was like tied up. And she was just holding a guy's hand at the top there. And um, I don't know. These things are just imprinted in my mind. And for me, it is just what you're willing to do to the least of these. Not as a trophy. Please, God, let us never, ever, ever take another selfie with a needy person. But just because we wanted to be that expression. The interesting thing about this parable is that the righteous were not aware and neither was the unrighteous. Does it make sense to you? It's the same kingdom premise as you got five and I got one, but you got according to your ability and you got according to your ability. So in effect, in the kingdom currency, you got the same. So, so the kingdom currency must be the thing that starts to govern our thinking. What we do to the least of these, even if we're not aware of it, wonderful, the Lord knows that, that's the sign of the righteous, that we become aware, the unrighteous, says there in verse uh, 44, did not see the Lord in the people, the righteous were unaware unaware that they were even doing this, because they were just doing it, because we are the representation of Christ, amen, Amen. geez guys, you've got a lot of study to do with chapter 24 and 25, okay, so we're coming to the end of Matthew, I wanted to just say something, Quickly about one, and then I'm done. So the one thing, um, so yeah, there are like five or six churches represented. There might be more people that arrive on the night, and um, we're going to have to get logistics right, okay? I'm so grateful that Deb's is, is, is running with the coffee shop side of it, and she's got a little team of baristas and people that will help and serve there, but, um, uh, but I would love for all of you to come. I would love for all of you to bring your children. Don't say, my, my children, no, no, bring your children. This is the culture that we're wanting to build. It's unity, and it's focused on Jesus. On Thursday, on Thursday, if you are free, please, we need help. Because we are expecting a lot of people. So according to some of the other guys, between two or 300 people. So we'll have to move a lot of the pews out. We're going to set up the stage in the middle. We need help to carry stuff, to, to, to set it up in the middle. If you have a lamp that is about this high, that's cool, not, an, not a blaring IKEA one that's changing your eyes, but something that's softer than 40, we'd love for you to, please, we need like four or five of them just to put in the middle. We're going to only have those ambient lights on. And lastly, very importantly, if you can, please, if you don't mind, if you could carpool with somebody, it will be super helpful. There's no way we're going to fit in here. And because of spring, we can't go onto that grass. It'll, it'll destroy the, the cemetery, and then we're in big trouble. So we're going to park here. We are hoping to talk to Monica next to in the, in the in the golf course to go down there. If you want to help me on the night with parking, that will be amazing. You have to be here at 5.30. And please tell me before that so I can know more or less how many guys, because we're going to need people to park. If you could carpool, that will be amazing. You could either park at Terra and carpool, or you could park at the golf course. But don't park at the golf course yet. I have to confirm with them. I'll, we'll email the church. All right. Friday night. Starts at 7 o'clock. Coffee shops open at 5.30. If you want to come along. All right. Let's pray. Let me close. Who's excited about Friday night? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Woo! Number one fan. She's a super fan. Lord, we don't want to be. Uh, Lord, we truly want to be those who are fully engaged with this life, fully aware of what you're doing and, and, and what you're busy with, not always filtering everything through our own lives, but to see the big picture. I know it's tough sometimes, Lord, because we've been, we've been trained like this in this world that it's about us, but it really is about you and, um, in every area. We ask you, Holy Spirit, that, that you would just, we want more and more of you. We know that we've received the fullness of God and all things that we need for life and godliness, but we do want more and more of your spirit, both both in the, in the dynamite power of it and in the spiritual formation of it, that you would shape us into your image, Lord. I feel that we have one generation, Lord. Well, I have one generation, and I'm dead, and so does everybody here, probably, but in that generation, maybe two generations, Lord, I pray that there would be a shift closer to the kingdom of heaven being on earth, in Jesus' name. And so, we call those things that are not as though they were in this context, of the kingdom coming to earth, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Lord, I'm so thankful for what you're doing in the spirit of unity, and that we hardly even tried it. And now there's a bunch of churches coming together, literally, to, to, to worship you. To worship you. To worship you. Sing and be together and meet each other. Encourage each other. Strengthen each other. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you that that the temple was overthrown. You became that temple. And though they nailed you to a cross three days later, you rose as the temple. And it's never changed. You've invited us into that wonderful story. It's it's mind-blowing. Thank you. Holy Spirit, thank you for that. We want all of your kingdom with you at the top of that as the king. So we bow our knee, we delight to obey, and we bless you, Lord. We have all authority over every spiritual power and principality in this place. We do. Even generationally, things that have bound us and blinded us, we have the power to tear those down as your word is revealed to us by your spirit. We say, come, Lord. We want to play the game. We're ready to play the game. You know what I mean when I say play the game, right? The real game. In Jesus' name, amen.